Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend, and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is sponsored by Philip Lee, one of Ireland's fastest growing corporate law firms and expert advisors at the heart of the Dublin and London startup, fintech, and crypto communities. On the show this week, we've got Matthew Larby, founder and CEO of Realm a blockchain metaverse ecosystem where you can create and explore your own play-to-earn microverse. In this episode, Matthew and I talk through what is Realm, making the metaverse more accessible, his own transition from being a Web2 founder to a Web3 founder, building a seed round in advance of Realm's IDO, or Initial Decentralized Exchange Offering, and a little-known fact about his love for competing. All right here on Money Never Sleeps. What are you drinking? Uh, coffee, latte. Lovely. Yeah, exactly. And where, and where are you today? Uh, Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Yeah. Very cool. Well, the, the, when you and I first chatted, Matt, you were um, on your way back from somewhere warm. Yeah, I think we've been at Art Basel in Miami, I think. Yes, that yes. Sense. And then you were returning to London, were you? Uh, or yeah, was that New York? Okay, yeah. All right, cool. All right, well, listen. Well, why don't we we hop right into it? And the best way to get started is with you telling us your backstory, how you got to this point, sure, and um, w- what you're doing right now. Yeah, um, yeah. I've been working in the technology business for probably about ten years now. Um, yeah, we sort of previously made some technology to sort of connect people to buildings, um, an internal GPS system using Bluetooth, um, and the idea was that you could sort of locate people inside buildings, order services, things like that, and have them delivered to your location. Um, we exited that business in, in 2015. Um, and then, yeah, we've been, I was working on a sustainable sort of um, a kind of like smart tech machine, which created different types of uh, mineral waters on demand. Uh, and then the world got shut down. And I, I, I learned a strong lesson about, um, I don't know, like black swan events coming out. And, you know, right. as a founder, you, you, you're like, there's absolutely no way that they're going to shut down the world. And then you're kind of like, hold on, we've got an out-of-home product. And, um, yeah, so that was kind of a, a bit of swift ending. Um, yeah, and then we started on Realm, um, looking at metaverse products and, and, and trying to sort of create um, a unique offering uh, that solves some of the key problems that we saw. Gotcha. I had a look back at your early career, Matt. And uh, on LinkedIn, as I do yeah. for anyone that I'm talking to on this show, yeah. And you and I both started our careers at the same place. So, so you started with Fidelity, yeah, exactly. So yeah. I started way back when, about what 15 years before you did. Mm. Um, but Fidelity International and Fidelity Investments, yeah. Obviously, as I learned through the years, two so completely different companies that, mm. um, you know, just under the same parent. But then, um, yeah, a few interesting things that you did. Before, like you said, with Unified App, once yeah. you got that up and running, um, and then leading that into Realm, can you tell us what is Realm and where the idea came from and why you're doing this? Yeah, so Realm is a metaverse that consists of lots of microverses, so small realms that people can create, and inside those realms they can do anything, everything from like you know an event. Uh, through to make a micro game, racing, something like that, um, open e-commerce stores, sell NFT assets, etc. Um, and it's uh, built as a mobile application with, uh, basically, we call it like a, a social metaverse. So there's a social app layer where, you know, newsfeed, profiles, etc., similar to you would find in any kind of social app. And then when you dig deeper, you sort of tap on, say, certain items that would appear in the newsfeed that will sort of take you into the metaverse at that space. Um, yeah, and the reason we sort of came up with it was 
um, I think we were kind of, we thought what was going on with Decentraland and crypto voxels was cool, but it wasn't really, um, you know, mainstream consumable experience. Um, and yeah, we, we, we started sort of doing a SWOT analysis on, on these metaverses. And then out the back of that, we were like, okay, so what do we want to design? And the three founders couldn't remotely sort of agree on anything so we said well if, if we can't agree on what we would like to build probably there's lots of people that have dreams about things that they want to build so maybe the, the idea is actually just to augment that for them and give them sort of tools that simplify it uh, and then we just started working out how to sort of bring the barriers down um, to sort of get into the metaverse so you know not having to necessarily buy a piece of land for a thousand bucks up front. Um, and then, yeah, it sort of spanned out more towards, we view it as a, a metaverse as a service platform. And is it that individuals can go in and build their own microverses or do you, is it a developer platform or is it both? Individuals. We expect for people, you know, the, the final product iteration should be something where, you know, an individual can swipe through some templates, adjust a couple of colors in a similar way that, they could, you know, add a filter to Instagram. Um, so they could either template things or they can use a drag and drop tool, which is on the mobile or on PC. Um, but yeah, no coding required, kind of more towards, um, you know, a Wix or a Shopify end of mm. web builders. Okay. And can they then invite their friends into their own version of the metaverse? Yeah, precisely. Yeah. And are there, is it basically setting up games that they, they can play in? in their space? Well, I think, you know, you can't really pigeonhole the metaverse into say any particular genre. So it's mm -hmm. everything from events through to actual economies that can occur inside these sort of games, uh, selling items, things like this. Um, so yeah, we've got a range of different things, which we, we say, you know, move from experiences through to kind of racing games, etc. Okay. All right. And just thinking about ready player one, which I think you and I talked about before mm -hmm. and thinking about, one of the, the the visual moments of that, at least when reading the book, because I only ever watched half the movie because I just the movie didn't work for me. It was more yeah. the book, right? And where um, what was it? Parsival and H were hanging out in H's chat room, which was H's basically in the old school days would have been in AOL America Online, yeah, you know, instant messenger chat room. Yeah, but this was actually a chat room where uh, the two of them were wearing their VR VR goggles and wearing haptic gloves so they could high-five each other, yeah. right? And hanging out and reading what were comic books that probably were NFTs yeah. and a few other things going on there as well. And is this a reality, a an augmented reality that you can actually introduce with Realm? Yeah, so obviously being mobile-focused, we were trying to sort of make the platform as accessible to as wide a number of people. Um, and we'll talk about why we do that in the few, uh, you know, shortly. But yeah, it's. Um, sorry, could you repeat the question? The no, and and it was kind of saying that if you imagine the future in the year twenty forty five, where you can be waltzing around these, you know, yeah. your buddy's chat room wearing VR goggles. Obviously, we're not doing that yet because we're not all wearing Oculus headsets. So we can right? augment entire spaces, which we've done already. Um, which you can walk inside and could sort of navigate and interact with virtual pets, objects, things like that. Um, that we've kind of already built and is sort of going into our public beta. Um, you know, we've sort of stayed clear of VR as it stands yeah. just for the hardware limitations. Um, but yeah, I mean, everything from we've looked at minting like NFT, like magazines or newspapers and littering them around the metaverse and things like that. 
there's like all of those other like aspects of digital objects and digital media are, are kind of being undertaken, even as far as like education sort of uh, from coming from crypto projects or, you know, actual conventional corporations are looking to use the metaverse as a tool to sort of implement company docs, company processes, etc. Yeah, so like uh, team building and things like this in escape rooms, like edge escape rooms is, is one of the partners that we're working with um, that creates education-based escape rooms for corporations. So it's kind of, the use cases are already quite abstract um, and, and can go as granular as you like, really, um, like, you know, well-made game. Yeah, absolutely. And when you guys set about to design this, what was the single most important thing for you to get right? Um I think it was what we were really thinking about was the overall experience that the user would have when they entered the metaverse. What what we realized was bizarre was it felt quite lonely when we, you know, in the early days in Decentraland and places like that. So it's a really large space and there wasn't really many people in there. So it felt like you were maybe walking around a ghost town and occasionally you would stumble into someone. So, you know, getting an atmosphere which felt like it was alive was was probably the foundation of, of, of how you would do that. And then obviously we started to think around how do you, you know, how do you actually maybe make it, you know, in your mind feel even more alive? And that's sort of bridging the the gap between the, the physical and the digital. And obviously augmented reality is a good technology for that. Um, and then doing some other things like mimicking actions that occur inside the game world in the real world. How did you guys do that? Um, so we usually partner with digitally native companies that say, for instance, like Plastic Bank, um, that has a token and an established system to take some fiat funds, distribute those into a community and create some positive impact. Um, yeah, and so start with finding the ones that are the most sort of digitally native. So you've got quick integration. Um, then what we did was we built economies around inside the game. So, you know, players and, and, and characters require food. So we're like, hey, what can we do here? Say, for instance, if someone plants trees to grow food and, and there's a whole economy cycle there, how much money can we extract off of this per to pay for the trees? So then we built the economies up with the sustainability sort of as the foundation of it. Yeah. Did you ever, um, what was the name of that game? Second Life. Did you ever play Second Life? A little bit, but yeah, some time ago. Yeah, no, I never did. Uh, but I, I listened to a podcast where the founder was talking about the whole experience and um, any any of the, any crossover of ideas coming from some old school first time attempts at getting some of this right that might have fed into um, your vision for Realm? To be honest, I'm not sure it, I, uh, I've been analyzing my mind quite a lot recently to look at this because I find that either subconsciously or something, you, you do tend to arrive at these similar kind of outcomes that then if you look at media that you haven't even seen, you, you're like, oh, hold on, this is sort of depicted already previously. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know really why or how that occurs. Um, I, I do think, though, that, you know, if you're the kind of person that's looked at the real world and the metaverse is essentially a sandbox trying to, create aspects of humanity society you know you're kind of thinking about better ways say we you know we don't have these government rules and these taxes and these different things like this it's like if we've got a proper sandbox what what's the solution you come up with and I, and I tend to think that I've seen in most cases a lot of these metaverses coming towards these same kind of ideas um 
you know, and that also has a bad side. So if we take, for instance, you know, the way land is dealt with in most metaverses, we've really just recreated the same land system that we had before where rich people can purchase lots of land. And, you know, they took the risk with what might be a small amount of their capital. They end up with all the land and then they sell it for a large amount afterwards. Um, you know, artificial scarcity there. So we sort of approached it on a dual land structure. There's a city where you can buy the land and then there's um, realms which anyone can make. Um, essentially, we'll rank a realm which is popular just the same as if it had a land parcel and, you know, we'll direct a lot of footfall there, um, which which at least makes a clear route from someone who's maybe got no money and is in the Philippines, you know, just on an Android phone building some cool fun game that lots of people play and now they start to generate money out of the metaverse from a you know a cluster of people who you know enjoy their creation that's cool it's almost like thinking about the later stages of where audience is going i don't think they're completely there yet but um where the top artists get paid in audio for the most footfall on their music which is basically listeners yeah right so are you have, is that the the same idea with realm is that yeah, so we have two models. We have a play-to-earn model, which is obviously, you know, directed at the player. And then we have a build-to-earn model, um, which is sort of there to try and incentivize people to build on the platform. And both of those models basically distribute Realm tokens, ownership in the overall metaverse yeah. to the relevant people. And, you know, then we just have to kind of manage the the distribution between the two things that you would do in a normal marketplace um, and try to make sure that, you incentivize enough builders to have the network effects of lots of different realms and things for people to visit and find stuff that, that you know, they personally enjoy. Um, yeah. And I guess we do some slightly different things where we uh, treat everybody equally and, and enable everybody to have the same opportunity here. So if you're in the Philippines or you're in, you know, San Francisco in the United States, if you spend time inside realm, you all get the same amount of realm tokens back. So it's kind of like, we're distributing everyone's time is valued at the same cost. Uh, I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. Okay. Really cool. I love it. I love it. Hey everyone, this is Pete. Let me tell you about the folks at Philip Lee. A few years ago, I was at my first venture capital industry dinner in Dublin, and honestly, I felt a bit lost. I bumped into Andrew Tizali, one of the partners at Philip Lee. He bought me a pint and introduced me to the team and they took me under their wing. That take you under their wing approach has been what I've heard consistently from fintech and crypto startups who I know have worked with Philip Lee in Dublin and London to help them wrap the right legal framework around their business, fundraising and regulatory needs. And I can't recommend them enough. Get in touch with the team at philiplee.ie or on moneyneversleeps.ie slash philiplee to learn more. This has been, you know, looking back at the first business that you founded, the Unified app, right? Yeah. Which you talked about at the beginning. Um, that it's quite a difference between running that business and the day to day demands on the CEO of that kind of business versus the day to day demands on the CEO uh, and founder of Realm, and you know, two different types of businesses. Can you talk about how you made that transition? Um, I was always in crypto. I've been buying and selling crypto from like 2013, but it wasn't like my primary role. Otherwise, I just get hooked on the charts and, mm. <laughs> you know, you end up over trading and it goes wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, it was a case of, I think these businesses are completely different to Web2 businesses. Mm. Uh, I see some massive benefits, you know, access to capital is quick. Um 
Access to liquidity for investors and team members is possible at the end of the vesting period, uh, which I think is a better deal and more attractive overall when you're hiring. Um, obviously, like you know, we've had we're fortunate that we were in this kind of position where metaverse was always quite a hot topic, uh, and then it blew up obviously with the meta announcement. Um, and, and highly, it's just highly creative, so it's it's quite an attractive you know kind of business to work on. The difficulties I found, though, is that you're trying to attract talent multiple different time zones. You know, we've pretty much got people all throughout Europe, Iran, Mexico, Philippines, Vietnam. And then your investors are all everywhere from Australia through China and places like that. So time-wise, it was kind of, um, it's, it's quite demanding, actually. It's, it, and then I think once you launch a token, you have to sort of appreciate the fact that you, a large percentage of your time is going to be sort of monitoring marketing that's occurring, understanding sentiment in the community. You know, there's always a new fire about someone complaining about something or someone not like just something not quite working. They don't understand how to use their trust wallet. So you've really got to ramp up much quicker than anything I've seen, but you do have the capital to do it. Um, you know, I just recommend hiring kind of and you know hiring people that maybe have done it before is you can find it with like the community mods and stuff but you're really going to struggle with like people like solidity devs marketing like marketing people and solidity devs so the gold dust in this in this space um yeah it's 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 completely different but i i don't think i'd ever go back um because if you if you effectively utilize the community that you'll be able to grow quite quickly because essentially they're you know happy to invest in potentially high return sort of assets then you know you can rather than say a web 2 startup where you might spend 40% of your revenue on saas like sorry on advertising costs mm-hmm. your saas business or something like that you know you're kind of actually looking to how you can organically sort of interact and, and engage the community to sort of do that marketing for you and you can see honestly like crazy amounts of people turning into sort of groups you know every day you you know gaining thousands of people into a group and it's kind of it's quite exciting um i definitely prefer it yeah yeah i I just big big difference between going out and saying all right how much am i going to spend on google ads or twitter ads you know this month in order to get more people to look at my SaaS, right um versus going out and virtually building that community through just engaging and interacting with individuals that you think may want to use your product or build on it developers that want to build on it it's just yeah it much more much more enjoyable i think so you know and it it makes more sense because now the people that are invested are there trying to market your product they're sort of introducing it to other people that you know may also invest or may use the product um, and, and ultimately, if people that other customers have ownership in the overall service, then probably means that they're less likely to churn in the end, unless something else comes out that's completely way better and can't sort of fit their solution or requirements. Yeah, I was listening to Chris Dixon from A16Z on the Bankless podcast this morning, and this was an episode he recorded back in October with them. And what he was he was talking about AI, right, and saying that as AI gets better and better we are at risk of centralizing that function even more because the incumbents, the big tech companies, are going to get better and better at what they're doing, yeah. right, with their ad targeting. And that, that just brings all of that, when you, when you think about that network, just concentrating so much of that in the center of the network. Yeah. Blockchain, um, with what you're doing, moves everybody to the fringes, right, and moves that ownership out to the fringes. 
um, and presents a lot more of an opportunity, like you said, to generate value out of that can be, that can be shared with the community and shared with the whole network. And it's a, it's a big, big difference between web two and web three. And I'm, uh, I, I, what I'm learning is that I do prefer web three. Where do you, where do you kind of see this going, um, over the next couple of years with web three, if you guys are, you know, with you guys expectingly going to be successful in this space? Yeah. I mean, you know, our product is actually really a bit of a hybrid, um, the, which it should be. Always the problem we've had with sort of crypto is UX and it's just impossible to kind of mm. use. And still it's a problem. You know, rarely you can sign transactions from inside a mobile app, for instance. Um, you know, there's pretty much any trust wallet and, um, and MetaMask that do that. So you, you're already like huge issues there. So we've kind of approached things from a, Let's try and bring people in with a user password, or they could sign in with um, with a wallet if they wanted to not do user password, and then we'll maybe try and bridge them later on into sort of the blockchain stuff. So they'll win coins and digital assets on a fiat side, and then they have the ability to then move those onto the blockchain um, and essentially sort of, I guess, like have the full access to kind of custody over the asset, send it to OpenSea, do whatever they want, stake. Mm-hmm so on and so forth um we really want like see the value in the blockchain side of things obviously like i say moving value it behind the scenes um efficiently using smart contracts paying royalties things like this obviously way better um existing games are kind of put in time put in money get nothing out at the end of it it's kind of like oh if i stop playing after a year and i've spent 120 pounds on different assets there's nothing i can do with them so clearly there's the the model of sort of having nfts or value transfer on the back on a digital ledger makes sense um yeah we just i know that like most women that i talk to about what we're doing they're like hey we still can't understand half this stuff like what is this like why do i have to do this and it's all kind of we really want to move away from that. I guess some of the newer engine, uh, sorry, engines, chains, things like Near and stuff with like human readable name, like account names and stuff, that helps for sure. Um, but still we're like stepping stones rather than kind of getting to like a web two user experience, which is like effective face ID, touch ID, everything's secure. And there's some way that we can back things up in a, in, in a more secure fashion. I don't, I think once that occurs, then you know, people are people will be attracted by things like 10, 20% stable yields on Anchor Protocol and things like this. Yeah. Can you move them into the system and then maybe bring Anchor Protocol into the metaverse, for instance, and you walk up to a bank and you just talk to your phone and it says, hey, like what you want to deposit these things that you have? And, you know, it works like that. Um, I think we the metaverse can be a really interesting user interface layer where you abstract away all of this blockchain stuff and you have some kind of mobile app or VR or whatever it is, and then you just interface with the thing and maybe we use voice recognition, face ID, or some biometrics to um, to actually activate the, the the transfer. Yeah, yeah, it's connecting the, the dots on a couple of things. One was a further thought from that Bankless podcast episode, but also, um, I forget who said it, but it was you know looking at the summer of nfts compared to the summer of defi that it's surprise surprise a lot more people are interested in culture than finance yeah right and seeing where that's gone and maybe that um that nfts and that whole space and the ability to move your avatar to move other digital assets from one environment to the next and giving people the opportunity to do that is the bridge that gets the next 100 million users into crypto and that 
that, of course, when they start earning tokens for you know what they're doing in the metaverse, that of course they are probably going to want to earn some yield on that uh, saving, and that would perhaps bring people into DeFi, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's how we see it, uh, and I'm hearing the same thing from investors. They've sort of plowed, I don't know, you know, seven, eight figures into NFTs over the last quarter, and they're seeing mad action there. And sort of the DeFi side's kind of pretty flat. Yeah, all yeah. the money has gone to, like you say, cultural objects, or at least you have something artistic. I guess it's kind of a, it's an expensive picture, but um, yeah, I think there's just nothing sexy about DeFi to your average user. Yeah, it's it's been a, it's been a great run, right? And I think it's a primitive that will it that's completely necessary for what we call emerging market societies in the cloud, right? It's that um, the UX needs to get better. And I've seen things like Zapperfy, uh, which is an overlay on top of MetaMask Wallet, which gives you a better user experience on MetaMask when you're trading across different asset classes. So I think that's a step in the right direction. Yeah. But it's a ways to go. And well, I mean, even on NFTs, it's like. You could be, you know, if, if you got to use that ETH to Polygon Bridge, you may end up waiting for, you know, a few hours to get that NFT into your wallet or my recent experience where it was a week before it even hit my wallet, right? So, um, but yeah, it's- Yeah, bridges are a, a problem, really. They always seem to get hacked. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's a little bit worrying, to be honest, um, for this whole interoperable future, which is meant to be super like relevant to the, the metaverse as a whole. That maybe you know you can take your digital assets from one metaverse and walk into another metaverse, but it's like, how does that really occur if you know you're down on Solana chain and you know you want to get over to BSC or something like this? Like, if the, if bridges aren't really functioning, you have to maybe use a service like Morales, where you you know what we do is we we scan all of the different blockchains, the same wallet addresses that you've connected to your account. And then we don't even care where the asset is. We just say that you definitely own this asset. And do we have any 3D files or sort of animations or interactions connected to the asset? Yeah, yeah. I was listening to someone else say something to the effect of, but listen, why would I want to drive my Ferrari from Grand Theft Auto into Axie Infinity and kill all those little things? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know, but sometimes, I mean, that is quite a weird one. I'm not going to say is. people should or <laughs> should <laughs> Um, but I think, you know, the idea of a diverse kind of set of characters and creatures and vehicles and clothes and styles is, you know, and sounds and everything is we're looking for a fully 3D multimedia immersive sort of diverse experience. You know, you want to go from Alice in Wonderland into some, you know, realm where you're suddenly like, you know, a sketch drawing and it's kind of like, OK, wow, what is this? Um, yeah, that's kind of, I think, you know, the the long view of, of where the metaverse will go. Yeah, and, and it's that you put time into these, into your players, right? I was talking to Laura Walsh from Gamify about this. Yeah. And it's like people want that mythology. People want the lore, the lore of the player that you build up and you that's meaningful to you. And you want to be able to take it to the next game rather than just, hey, let's go somewhere and create one and then, you know, use it all over the place. It's yeah. that you need that mythology from one game that's created by the story and the narrative of that game and be able to then bring it with you as you go. You know exactly cool now a couple of minutes ago matt you talked about access to capital and i just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on how you how you went about putting together your seed round for this and you know the the when you thought about pulling together the investor base you know what was important to you with with how that investor base came together um yeah, so I mean, obviously, just the basics. We just made a, a really nice deck. We had some prototypes built out that we were sort of looking at, and we were kind of thinking, 
obviously you want a range of different funds from different geographies, you know, some Chinese funds, obviously there's a massive market there, you know, US, European and so on. Um, then we went to some founders. So we've got a bunch of different founders who've sort of invested and they're really useful because they give you a completely different perspective. And I think it's, it's quite good to have that balanced viewpoint. You know, sometimes from an investor, it's kind of, you know, they're coming from one direction uh, and see something slightly differently. But from the founder, they're kind of thinking about like, you know, what's occurring operationally inside the business. And they're like, hey, don't run into these pitfalls. So yeah, we just took a blend like that. Um, and then, I mean, in the space we were in, obviously, and at the time when we were raising, it was extremely bullish. Um, I think we sort of closed our round. It was like April, May before, I think on my birthday was when the market completely sort of collapsed. Um, on May. Oh dear. Yeah. Happy birthday, Matt. I was like, I'm glad we closed this last, last month. Um, but yeah, it was just a case of sort of figuring out who were the best people. We spoke to maybe like 50, 60 different types of investors. We turned down, you know, three times the money that we took and we, we really didn't want to, we had a good understanding of what we could build at what rate and we didn't necessarily want to take too much capital and, you know, find that there was a large amount out there sort of in the market with investors who may potentially want to sell them you know, in line yeah. at the wrong time for us um, and at the wrong time for the community. Um, so, yeah, I think we raised about $3 million in total and it was a fairly quick process, to be honest, a lot quicker than Web2. You know, you look at three, six, 12 months sometimes. Oh, big time, big time. I've, I've told this story so many times that it, it you know, that where I'm noticing now with all of these projects that I'm talking to that if, they launched before October of 2021, it's too late because they've already moved so fast. They've pulled together a seed round perhaps. And um, once you raise a few million, coming into an accelerator program is a different proposition than it was before you raised yeah. the three million, right? Um, and, but if, you know, they, if they did happen to launch before October, um, August going, you know, way back in crypto years, right? That where it does make sense is if they've been building up a Web2 model and had then realized, wait a second, before we actually get this to market and start scaling it and build it, this actually has a much better fit for Web3 with where the world is going. Yeah. And so it's not necessarily a pivot because they haven't changed their product all that much. It's just yeah. on the yeah. Um, uh, on the baseline, how they deliver the value proposition, right? And that they are, you know, um, Duke looking at us and 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 need some help. And um, it's, uh, yeah, I guess it just takes the more and more you see in the space, the more repetitions you have, the better picture and the better clarity of the picture on where you think this is all going, right? Mm. L- looking at the, you know, at the, um, how you put together, like I said, putting together the seed round getting that inv- investor base together in advance of the private sale. How, how have things gone since the IDO that you did back in September overall? What do you think? I, I, you know, Things have gone fairly well. So I think uh, investors invested at basically three cents a token, somewhere around 35 cents now. It did go all the way up to 240. I saw that. Quite a lot of people. Yeah. So that's obviously pretty successful. We focused on products. Like we're kind of we're more interested about getting to the finishing line or the starting line should we say which is when you can actually release product and then getting into those feedback loops 
Um, you know, and also the thing is marketing in crypto is not the same as marketing in, uh, you know, over in <laughs> Web2 or any conventional marketing agency. Yeah. Yeah, the costings are through the roof. Um, you know, I've found it's just not necessarily as professional and it's very expensive. So it's a case of like, okay, at what point do you really want to like pile on a lot of marketing dollars? And it's kind of like, okay, there's this ramp up to sort of product launch and there's a bunch of stuff that happens in the sort of couple of months before that. Um, and then it's kind of like, let's use the sort of marketing dollars afterwards to ensure that we're getting people building and playing the game um, and driving that, you know, we started on the builders and the players already. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been, it's been quite a, it's a very reactive space mm. and actually as well, like if you, you know, we, I think we have about eight people full time so 24 seven in the communities across discord and telegram and things like that. Um, and you really do need to sort of manage public perception like heavily, um, uh, you know, consistency is one thing that I would say is, is fundamental. So if you can consistently release content on the same day as regular content, which really updates across like the different pillars of the business, be it what's happening behind the scenes with the developers through to, you know, what's happening on the partnership front and so on and so forth, that, that will sort of aid with the, the overall marketing um, perception, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's mind boggling in, in going through as many discords as I have to just check them out and use that to say, okay, how is this project building out their community and seeing those with, you know, tons of people online and how well that those communities are managed and enabling people to level up and earn rewards and just really incentivize them to get engaged before they even start using the product. Yeah. You know, and is there an element of that perfecting the, you know, early stage user incentivization on Discord that you then do carry over into your product? Is there, is there a relationship there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from the start, you're kind of trying to, man you know, you have to manage the expectation though as well, because if you hype it too much and there's like, you know, let's say six months till the actual product release, you're really just kicking the can down the road and it's like quite difficult to maintain that level of, of push. And then the problem is if it, what, what I, what I understand from sort of the charts and the psychology is kind of, if you, so say you have this big spike and then a bunch of people come in and then they obviously buy near the top. And then what you have is you have all these people who really just maybe made a slightly um, emotional trade, a, a FOMO type trade. And now you've polluted potentially your community with a bunch of people who made quite long trades, but were looking for a quick exit. Um, and, and obviously, when you can't necessarily stabilize that by, say, having use case for your token, which, you know, it will be consumed when people use the product, um, which, which is going to drive price action, uh, you know, you can find yourself in a tricky scenario. Um, I definitely think that we sort of we've had that issue, um, you know, to go from sort of, I mean, like three cents IDO up to maybe like 80 cents back down around sort of like 50 and then pump up to sort of 250, 240 or something like that. And then sort of come right back down and then the whole market destroys itself. And obviously micro, well, fairly small tokens are going to get hit quite hard. Um, but then again, I say that we haven't necessarily lost a lot of holder numbers. What they've done is they've just reduced their, their bag size. Yeah, I hear you. And I did see a video um, probably about a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, of a number of diff different type of game tokens that um, had not yet hit full steam, or at least the um, the the, the person who did the video it was their representation that that 
hadn't yet hit full steam and and realm were one of them and was there was there a um a scaled increase in the price after that video came out do, do those types of things impact yeah they de- the price? they definitely do um we do track that so obviously with the larger the channel the bigger the impact mm-hmm. um yeah i mean that's that's definitely a thing your kol strategy is pretty big that you know that's the problem as well so the, the major difference is that you know web two business should spend all your time writing pitch decks and imaginary models for vcs um web three are there going how do we hire people how do we better communicate between the marketing team which consists of you know kols that may be invested at a seed level who are massive through to micro kols through to kols of gaming things through to twitch streamers and all these different aspects and it's 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 you have so much capital to deploy and you want to obviously get the analytics in and then understand whether or not, you know, it's effective um, quickly. So it's really just a case of finding excellent people that can put those systems in as quickly as possible. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, we have a full backend custom built analytics dashboard that scans every, every chain that our tokens on. We have a list of addresses for every type of KOL, uh, pre-saler investor, Basically, we uh, stratify wallets by certain sizes and run all sorts of like blockchain analysis on that. Um, and then we're going to take that data and use it elsewhere inside the actual product. So, yeah, uh, take all the information, you know, use APIs on Etherscan, et cetera, run it into Google Data Studio. Um, and then, yeah, we're, we're going as far as sort of making sure it's our play to earn and build to earn uh, force it uh, essentially attached to that data and, 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 you know, not, not impacting the price in a negative way. Absolutely. And because my mom listens to this podcast and she asked us to clarify all acronyms, can you please let our audience know what a KOL is? Uh, key, key opinion <laughs> leader. Yeah, key I, opinion. I know. We'll call them influencers. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's no, a that's, term. that's great. And it, taking a step back and looking at the broader space, right, mm. that, you know, if you had one thing that you would absolutely point to and say, this is a trait of someone who's completely ready for someone who's completely ready for Web3 and ready to knock the ball out of the park in Web3, what would that trait be? Uh, you mean as a fa- from a founder's perspective? From a founder's perspective, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that people that understand user experience and user interface um obviously can win i mean there's this the lowest line fruit in in this kind of space if, if there's anything you can do to optimize that you win um and i also think that two problems that we've noticed is it's it's rather different working you know i've never met anybody here who works around there's like 70 people i think i know three people obviously i know them all but like i've never met i've only met three of them in, in real life so managing this this thing can be quite demanding so if somebody has experience from a like a web two kind of startup business and understands like operations and how to get things in place and and also maybe to manage culture there then i think they're going to really excel that's that's interesting because yeah. you know in this space before nfts open things up to be more about media art gaming that you know DeFi was there crypto being the basic payments infrastructure before DeFi came along and the the sought after skill set was do you have experience in traditional finance mm. right and and saying that can you then bring that into crypto and now it's 
okay, look at Web 2 on a broader basis, not just yeah. traditional finance, but Web 2, and say, did you excel in that? And can you then transplant that into Web 3? That's an yeah. interesting thought. Because the singular skill set that the person needs to really have is like, how do we deploy the capital to accelerate growth? Because there is, there's no like, games being played everyone gets given a massive bag of money at the beginning and it's like okay now we've got we've got to grow this thing at the same rate you know most of the metaverse companies are pulling at least 30 engineers now probably teams of 50 70 people you know i know some which are trying to push to 180 engineers by the end of this year so it's like you know the growth just in the engineering department's massive and 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 actually to scale that you need experience in the actual back-end operations like how are we managing this many people Mm. they're on different time zones you're starting to try and find people skill sets say for engineers which are quite rare like you know try and find a solidity dev nowadays it's like the chances in you finding anyone decent on you know a normal job site no chance you need to go to specialist headhunters who go and poach them from places or kind of you know know the know the individuals and sort of they sort of reach out to them and say that they're looking for new jobs um so all of that it's like you need to be very organized and you need to be able to deploy the capital in as fast way as possible and then just track the analytics on it um, you know, how's it performing? Um, yeah, it's kind of, it's all we've really done. And ultimately, you know, we, we're lucky that we started with a strong core of individuals. Some of the guys from Cambridge University, doctors in maths, places like, you know, people of, of, of a decent academic quality and experience. And then they come in and then they help their network. And then, you, you know, once you've got a, a strong core, you can sort of attract better people, I think. Oh, absolutely. I hear you. We're going to move to the final question, Matt. You ready for this? Sure. All right. And we like to ask this to everybody. We get sometimes some crazy answers, sometimes some some less than crazy answers. But tell us, what would be one thing that people would not expect to know about Matthew Larby? Um, I don't know. I suppose in my previous life, when I was like a a young kid, I used to win stuff for Great Britain. I was like second in the world when I was 15. And I I didn't really go to school for thursdays and mondays um, really yeah quite frequently i would go, I'd just go to like competitions down in europe and places like this and my school was all the way up in um the north of england so yeah i usually leave on maybe thursday nights sometimes and drive over to europe in a motorhome um and then yeah spend spend the weekend windsurfing or on the beach and then go back to school on tuesday wow wow what was the coolest place where you won a windsurfing competition i don't know I've won quite a few, but um, everything, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> everything in Europe, I guess, like places like Italy, Lake Garda, things like that. Lake Garda is a beautiful place if you've, if you've never oh, been. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely. It's an incredible place, although the water is absolutely freezing. Um, but yeah, Italy as a whole, you know, you can't really go wrong. Great food and um, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I'd pretty much say that. All right. Well, shout out to Lake Garda. Funny story. One thing people wouldn't expect to know about me, the, yeah. la- the single time I was in Lake Garda, um, we left Lake Garda, my wife and I, after the wedding that we were at, we drove across to, um, where is it that Romeo and Juliet took place? Verona. Yeah. Verona. And we went for lunch, looking at the menu. It's an Italian. I recognized something, and I wasn't sure what it was. Uh, and it was the description of the pasta. It was bigoli, mm. right? And which is big, fat spaghetti, right? And so I had that, and it was called... Um, Bigley Dasino, and I didn't know what that was, but it came over looking something like spaghetti bolognese, so I ate it. And afterwards, I Googled it. I spelled Dasino wrong. It was Dasimo, which is a robot 
generated or built by uh, Honda. Yes. And then I actually got D apostrophe A S I N O, which is donkey. <laughs> and I'm like, I just ate donkey bolognese. <laughs> Never again. It, 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 that was like before you had access to like Google Translate at the tip of your fingers. Right? Yeah. Exactly. So, um, but better you winning windsurfing competitions in Lake Garda than me eating donkey. But, you know, we'll leave yes, it at that. Yeah. Um, remember that word. Yeah. Listen. Matt, this was an awesome chat. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And really looking forward to seeing you guys knock the ball out of the park, right? Cool. Brilliant. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Matt. That does it for this week, folks. Thanks to Matthew Larby for opening up his mind to help us figure out why he does what he does. Links to get in touch with Matt and learn more about Realm are in the show notes on our website, moneyneversleeps.ie. So check us out online and subscribe to our Money Never Sleeps newsletter as well. Also, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm an early stage startup investor and advisor focused on where fintech meets crypto and crypto meets Web3. If you'd like to talk to me about your business, drop me a line on info at moneyneversleeps.ie. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya! Money never sleeps, pal.